Hallelujah, Lord. <laughs> Praise you. Father, we just rejoice tonight to be able to come round your word. We want to thank you, Father. It's so wonderful to dwell in the tents of the righteous. It's so wonderful to be able to dwell in the temple of God. Father, we just thank you for your presence among us tonight. We just thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we just know is upon each individual and within each individual here. Father, we're just asking tonight, Father, that you may be glorified in all we say and all we do. Father, we thank you especially for all those wonderful men of God who, Father, have preserved the text of the Bible for us. Father, many men who've spent year after year laboriously copying every letter and every word and every vowel point. Father, we just give you praise for those men. Father, and we just ask that you'll give us such a desire and hunger for the Word of God as those men had. Oh, Father, forgive us that sometimes we can be so trivial about the Word of God. But, Father, we are here tonight because we are serious about it and we take it seriously. Thank you, you are prepared to reveal your mind to us. And thank you that through the Word of God we have the mind of Christ. Oh, Father, it's so marvellous that, that, Father, we can know every moment of the day what you're thinking about us and what you think about our circumstances and what you think about the, the problems that sometimes come against us. Father, we just rejoice and we thank you for your enabling. We thank you for your living Word, Father, that is there, Father, as, as a means of correction upon each one of us. Father, we just ask tonight you will open our eyes, open our ears to the truth that we may hear and rejoice that we have a God who speaks and communicates with every one of us. Father, just bless us tonight, Father, as we gather round your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Amen. It will actually be next time that we begin on what I call recognized prophecy. Uh, We have actually, from next time and for the remainder of this course, and the whole of next course, uh, we have a time where we're going to talk about prophetic passages, we're going to talk about fulfilled prophetic passages, we're going to talk about the scheme of things that is going to happen. But you will, of course, have realized that as we embark upon the fourth talk tonight, that so far we've only been on introduction. And we've only seen so far um, why prophecy is important and the place that prophecy has in the life of the believer and how we know that biblical prophecy is different from worldly prophecy or false prophecy, as I've called it. Tonight, we're not dealing with an introduction, we're dealing with a foundation. Because the time has come for us to lay down the foundation upon which we are going to build. For, as you probably know, there are different views or different interpretations, may I say, over the subject of prophecy. And you will find wonderful men of God, great spiritual giants, right down the the ages and living today, who have different views over prophecy. And their views aren't just different, different in degree. In other words, they argue about details. Their views are totally and widely different. Now, in this course, obviously, we are going to take one particular view. So, it is only fair that today I lay down the base on which we are going to build. 
And we've got to understand this, that the differences in prophetic ideas are not about details, they are about basic ways of looking at the Bible. It is as fundamental as that. It is as fundamental as turning to a passage and seeing how you view the passage. So, let's just have a look. Except for the people who are just plain ignorant and happy in their ignorance, every person in this room will be in one of two camps over prophetic passages. There are two main camps, and all people come into one or other of the two camps. The two camps, I'm going to call this, number one, the allegorical view. A-double-L-E-G-O-R-I-C-A-L. Allegorical view. I'll explain what it means in just a moment. The second view is what I would call the literal view. The literal, or the plain, or the normal, or the straightforward view, whatever you'd like to call it. Let's call it the literal view for tonight. Every person, when confronted with a prophetic passage in the Bible, either takes it allegorically, or takes it literally. Now, the word, let's take the, them both. First of all, the allegorical view. The word allegorical comes from two Greek words. The word for other, and the word for to speak. And you put those together and you get to speak other. And simply it means this, that when you read certain words in the Bible, they don't mean what they say, they mean something else. That's the allegorical view. To give you an example of that, um, these people would say that where you come across a prophetic passage that actually uh, names Israel and it's unfulfilled, then they would say, well, the word Israel doesn't mean Israel. When you talk about Israel, you normally mean the Jewish nation. If you are of the allegorical view, you say, oh no, Israel there is simply a name or a picture, picture language, for the church. So when they come across a prophetic passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament that happens to name Israel, they would say, now that does not refer to the nation of the Jews, it refers to the church. So, there's Israel, it doesn't mean Israel, it means the church. And they would say that Israel now has passed from the purposes of God and we have come into the purposes of God as the church. That's the allegorical view. Similarly, of course, uh, Jerusalem doesn't mean Jerusalem. It's funny, isn't it? You'd think it would, but it doesn't mean Jerusalem. I'm showing you exactly which side I'm on. It doesn't mean Jerusalem. It actually means heaven or it means the throne room of God, or something like this. It means anything else, but it doesn't mean literal Jerusalem. Mount Zion is not a mountain in Jerusalem. It's the throne room of God. So that, for example, if you have a particular passage that uh, talks about Israel should dwell in peace, it simply is a prophetic passage, according to the allegorical view, that means that the church is going to have peace. So that, for example, we could read a prophecy... And my people Israel shall dwell in peace. And they would say, well, isn't that wonderful? There's a prophecy. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're all going to dwell in peace. Or they would uh, come to a passage which said, Israel shall dwell in a land that flows with milk and honey. And that means that the church is going to be prosperous. Or you will come to a passage where it says, and the Lord shall reign in Zion and shall rule his people Israel. Oh, and may continue in that vein. That doesn't mean, of course, 
according to the allegorical view, that Jesus is going to reign in Israel at Jerusalem and rule his people Israel. It doesn't mean that. What it means is he's going to rule the church and they're going to know the peace and the blessing upon them because of the rulership of Christ. That's the allegorical view. The literal view, however, comes along and says no. Wherever you read a word in Scripture, that is what the Scripture means. So that when you therefore come upon a passage that deals with Israel, it's talking about Israel, they would say. It's not talking about the church. No, no, there may be ideas connected that can be applied to the church, but it's talking about Israel. When it's talking about the Jews coming back to the land, it's talking about the Jews coming back to the land. It's not talking about the church coming into the hidden mysteries of God. When it talks about Jerusalem, it means Jerusalem. When it talks about Mount Zion, it means the geographical location in Jerusalem. When it's talking about Christ ruling Israel from Jerusalem, it means one day that Christ will actually have his throne at Jerusalem and will rule an area that he will call Israel. Now that's the literal view. And you will notice this is very important because it dictates how we view the present nation of Israel. And you will find today that people who take the allegorical view do not pray for Israel and do not pray for the peace of Jerusalem because they would say, no, no, that simply means the peace of the church. So they will be praying for the church and the peace of the church. And they would say that present-day Israel is just an ordinary nation like Cambodia or like Argentina and is absolutely no different. The people who take the literal view are the ones who are always praying for Israel who are always asking God to protect his nation, Israel, who are the ones that whenever a fight or fisticuffs is going on in the Middle East, immediately say, Lord, protect Israel, give Jerusalem peace, and they start praying. Now, by this time, you know whether you're all, uh, you are of an allegorical point of view or of a literal point of view. The area where it affects us most is the area where we come to talk about the kingdom of God, or what is sometimes called the millennium. M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-U-M, the millennium. Let me show you a passage, and let's see it from both aspects. First of all, Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And we'll just read a few verses and see how we interpret them. Now, in Revelation 19, it describes something that perhaps is the return of the Lord. The literalist would say it's definitely the return of the Lord Jesus, second advent. And then you get chapter 20, and let's just read what it says, and let's actually see where we come to. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And if you go then to the end of verse 4, during which it describes certain people who are believers, and it says, And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, the allegorical school would say about this, now listen, let's get one thing clear. A thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. That's what they would say. They would say that ten is the number of perfection, you see, or completeness, 
And so you've got 10 times 10 times 10. So what that means is not a thousand years, but the perfect period as far as God is concerned. In other words, the period that God needs to fulfill his purposes. And they would say that, uh, of course, the reigning people and those who reigned with Christ is the church. So here, apparently, you've got a description again of the church. You don't know how long it's going to last, except you know it's not going to last a thousand years. It's going to be some other period, and up to now it's lasted, say, uh, 1,940 years or something like that. All right? Now, that's what they would say about this particular passage. So, here you are, you're dwelling in peace, you're in the kingdom already, you are the millennium, you people in the church. Do you remember, by the way, that when I dealt with this in greater detail in the millennium uh, issues, uh, special tape, I actually called this view amillennialism. And you'll find this is the view that the majority of the churches take. The Anglicans, the Roman Catholics, and a lot of the... uh, institutionalized churches. They actually take this point of view. Now, the literalist comes along. He says, now, hold on just a minute. He says, if it says a thousand years, it means a thousand years. And the church has been on the earth longer than a thousand years, so this is not the church. That's what he would say. And he would say, and chapter 19 describes the Lord coming back, so it's obvious that the Lord comes back and then he reigns literally on the earth for one thousand years. That's what he would say. And that's the literal viewpoint of these passages. You'll notice the literalists find it easy to explain about the devil here. In other words, in some time in the future, the Lord is coming back, he'll take the devil, he'll bind him up, and he'll throw him into the bottomless pit where he won't work anymore. The allegorical view has a problem here, because they say, ah, well, it's obvious that when the church began, that is, at the time of Christ, the devil was bound up so that he should deceive the nations no more. And they will explain to you how the devil was bound up at the time of Christ. To the literalist, that seems rather funny. And they say, well, it's quite obvious when you look around that the devil is not bound up. And so the debate starts. But can you see, the debate is not over issues. The debate is over the fundamental principle of how do you view the Word of God. Turn with me to Revelation 7. And we'll see another example. Here, you've got a very hard time coming on the earth. And you've got a description of a group of men. There are 144,000 of them. Now, you can imagine, the allegorical view says, ah, when it says 144,000, it doesn't mean 144,000. It means, well, 12 is the number of governmental perfection, so it's 12 by 12 by 10, by 10, by 10. In other words, governmental uh, perfection for a period of time which God counts as complete. That's what they'd say. So here you've got a perfect number of people. And so let's read it, verse uh, 4 of Revelation 7. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. But listen, the allegorical view says, ah, that's not Israel. That's the church. That's what they would say. The literalists say, oh no, here are 144,000, literally, 144,000 Jews, literal Jews. And you'll notice, it then goes on, 12,000 of the tribe of Judah, 12 of Reuben, 12 of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and it lists all the others. The literalists would say, why, if it was the church, do you actually read that there are 12,000 from the tribe of Asher? Does that mean that all the church is divided into tribes? And if so, which tribe are you? 
by the way. You see, so there you've got the, the two views. Let's have a look at another passage which I think demonstrates it. I'm doing this very quickly, but to give you the idea. If you want more detail, go to the Millennium Series. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah and chapter 52. Take an Old Testament passage, and we'll see how it affects us. Isaiah 52. All right, Isaiah 52 and verse 7 and 8. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Now the allegorical point of view says this refers to the church. The person preaching the good news may be Christ. On the other hand, it may be every single person in the pulpit who's proclaiming salvation. And how beautiful are the feet? Well, of course, that means the message is tremendous. These men are peacemakers, extraordinaire, as it were. And then it says, that saith unto Zion. Zion does not mean Jerusalem. It doesn't mean anything to do with the Jews. It means the church. And what's the message? Thy God reigneth. That's the message. And then the next verse, the watchmen, here are the people who watch in the church, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. They shall see eye to eye and they say, isn't this wonderful? The whole church is going to come into unity. We're going to start singing together. We're going to start praising together. We're going to start seeing eye to eye. There's total unity coming upon the church. And they would, they would say uh, that that is the message of this passage. There it is, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. And they would say that occurred when the church came in. Uh, to the literal point of view, he says, no, 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 no. Unity may come in the church, but uh, it's not told in this passage. Here we've got a passage that deals specifically about Israel, is what he would say. And he'd say, one day the Lord himself is going to stand on the earth again. How beautiful are the feet of him, they would say. And then they would say he starts publishing salvation. Who to? The Jews. And the first thing that happens, they would say, when Christ returns, just as he's about to establish the kingdom, is they start preaching the gospel to the Jewish... He starts uh, calling out salvation to the Jewish people. That's the first thing that he does. And it says, in that day, all the watchmen, here are the people who are looking for the second advent of the Lord. They all start singing together when they see him. They start saying, wow, it's Jesus. He's coming down from the clouds. It's wonderful. That's what they would start proclaiming. And look what happens. His presence gives unity. I'm not going to start speaking on that as far as we're concerned. But his presence gives them unity. And suddenly these Jews, who've had all sorts of theological ideas, start seeing eye to eye about matters. Now there's the two. The amillennialist view, which is an allegorical view, says the church is Israel. Says the church is the kingdom. The literalists here who take the opposite, do you remember, it's the pre-millennial view. In other words, Christ will return and he will establish the kingdom on this earth. They start saying, no, this is a passage that refers to Israel. Now, do you see how big the gulf is? And we've got to decide, well, which view do we take? Because whichever view we take, it's going to change our thinking on everything. And don't forget 
that I have got something like 23 hours of Bible study on prophecy coming up. So it's time now that we laid the base. Well, let me first of all announce what view I take. I will be taking prophecy from a literal viewpoint. In other words, number two. More than that, I take the whole Bible from a literal viewpoint. Genesis, all the prophets, the life of Jesus and everything else from a literal viewpoint. Because I believe that it's only the literal viewpoint that makes the Bible understandable and logical. That's it. All right, now there's the view we're going to take. Tonight we've got to see how do we justify taking that view and what are the problems if you take an allegorical point of view. So let's tonight look at this. We've got to justify why we take a literal point of view over Scripture. Well, of course, we believe that language, whether it's English or French or Esperanto or whatever type of language it is, and of course uh, I, as a literalist, do not like Esperanto, um, whatever type of language it is, it is designed to communicate ideas clearly. And the Bible would say that the Lord himself invented language to communicate his ideas to us who are human beings. Well, wouldn't it be rather strange if God, who wanted to literally and clearly explain his ideas to us, actually obscured his ideas by writing sentences which he didn't mean in any way? So that, for example, he meant to say that peace will be on the church. What he actually says is peace will be on Israel. Uh, to me, uh, as one who takes the literal point of view, I think that God would not do such a thing. I think that God clearly wants me and all of us to come into our inheritance, our birthright, which is the word of God. And language has been designed to communicate these ideas. Therefore, God surely must in the Bible have communicated his ideas as simply as possible. All right? May I say that all Bible scholars are agreed on two things. Two things. They are agreed that one, the fundamental difference between them about prophecy is how you take scripture, whether it's allegorical or liter literal. They all agree about that. But the second thing they all agree about is very interesting. For they all agree that if you do take a literal view of scripture, you come to the view that the Lord Jesus himself shall descend and that he shall establish a thousand-year rule on this earth. They all agree, even people who don't take a literal view themselves, agree that if you do, then you get the idea of the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of a thousand-years reign on the earth. They all agree. May I give you a quotation from a chap who actually is an allegorical, uh, takes the allegorical point of view. Could I just uh, quote from him? This uh, man is called Floyd E. Hamilton, and he wrote a book called The Basis of Millennial Faith, in which he actually outlines that the basic difference is this one of how you take Scripture. Look what he says, and listen carefully to this. He takes the allegorical point of view. Listen, he's an amillennialist. Here's what he says. Now, he says, we, that is the amillennialist and the postmillennialist, by the way, now, we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies 
gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. There we are. He admits it. If you take it literally, yes, they're right. But we don't take it literally, is what he's saying. He then goes on, makes another statement. That was the kind of messianic kingdom that the Jews at the time of Christ were looking for on the basis of a literal kingdom interpretation of the Old Testament. Now that's very significant, for he says that at the time of Christ, the Jews took Old Testament prophecy literally, and they were expecting Christ, the Messiah, to come and to establish a literal kingdom on the earth. Now, they all agree about that. Therefore, of course, if we take a literal point of view, you know how the series that deals with future prophecy is going to go. We're going to see how the Lord shall come down personally. And he's actually going to walk on this earth. And his capital will be at Jerusalem. And he's going to rule the earth for a thousand years. It's going to be the most wonderful thousand years that this earth has ever had. It's going to be literal. And the devil's literally going to be bound up. That's previews of uh, coming attractions, by the way. And that is exactly what we are going to see from this. Right? We take a literal point of view. Okay. And God speaks clearly when he says something, he means something. By the way, one of my relatives at one time had a dog. And I used ordinary language to communicate with this dog. And it didn't take me allegorically, it took me absolutely literally. If he was doing something that uh, I didn't like, I used to go, like that. And instantly, it stopped him. He stopped instantaneously. Because to him, that meant, you watch out, you dog, or else you're in for trouble. Right? If I wanted to get him excited, I'd just say, walkies. <laughs> he knew clearly what was going on. Or I'd say, up, 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 up. And you used to get excited about that. Now there's the communication in language. And the Bible's full of language because God wants to communicate his will to us. Hallelujah. Now by a literal point of view, we are saying this, that you take scripture as plain language and at face value. You take it in a straightforward manner. That does not mean that you do not allow for idioms or uh, figures of speech. It does not mean that. Neither does it mean that the Bible doesn't in part contain some picture language. If, those, if any here read their daily newspaper, you read today's newspaper, you read tomorrow's newspaper, and you see whether the people who are writing the news use any idioms, or whether sometimes they use picture language. They do. But why do they use idioms and why do they use picture language? It's to make the message clearer. Not to obscure the thing so that you read your daily telegraph and you can't tell where the trouble's going on. It says Persia, but obviously it doesn't mean Persia. I wonder where it is. This is perhaps Vietnam or something like this. Of course not. The Bible uses idioms to explain things, uses visions to sometimes say in just a short chapter what would have taken volumes to write about. All right? Because we do the same. I use idioms in these Bible studies that help me explain what I'm trying to say. Not to make you all confused, though sometimes they do. It's not, that's not the purpose of it. It's to clarify things. I think the example I gave on the Millennial Issue tape was it's uh, Aunt Maud who writes from Margate and says, Wow, she says, it's been raining cats and dogs here. That does not mean to say that literally cats and dogs have been falling down from the sky. Of course it doesn't mean that. It has nothing to do with that at all. 
What is she saying? Her literal meaning is, it's been raining a lot in Margate this year. And so when we see idioms and figures of speech, we understand their literal meaning. I sometimes get in from a Bible study or uh, from ministry, and I will say to my wife, wow, I could eat a horse. (laughs) Now, if she served me up a horse, I don't (laughs) honestly think that I'd be too pleased about that, and I think probably my dentist wouldn't be at all pleased with the matter. Obviously, my meaning is I'm starving. So when you are talking about taking something literally, you are allowing for idioms, and you're allowing for figures of speech. Let me show you some in the Bible that we actually would use. Turn to the book of Genesis. Let's take two from the book of Genesis. There are so many that we could take. Genesis 49 where we have Jacob prophesying over his children. We will be dealing with this passage in a later Bible study. Genesis 49. Well, we could take many of these, but let's just take uh, Genesis 49, verse 17. All right? Genesis 49 and verse 17. And it says here, Dan shall be a serpent by the way an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backwards. Now, it is, to, to take it literally, it doesn't mean to say that you think that Dan is actually a snake and a sort of species of snake. No, it is quite clear what that means. The Jews would have walked down the road and they would have known people who would have been bitten by venomous snakes and would have died from the bites. And they've accidentally trodden on a snake, which has has actually put its fangs into their feet. And what it's saying is, you watch Dan, it's saying, you watch him. He'll hide away and you think he's not doing you any trouble, but suddenly he'll bite and you'll find poison spreading through your system. And God said all of that in a lovely figure of speech here. Beautiful little picture at that point. Now we take it literally. That's literally what it meant. And that's literally how we take it. Praise God. Turn to another one. All right, Genesis 25. Where we have a woman who was barren who suddenly finds she's pregnant. And the child's kicking. She can't sleep at night because the child is kicking. And that's because there are two children in there. And so she comes to the Lord and she says, What's all this about? I'm not getting any sleep these days. And look what God says. Look at this. Verse 23, the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, 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 no wonder she wasn't getting any sleep. (laughs) What does he mean? He means you're going to have twins, and each one is going to be the father of, of great nations. That's literally what he meant, and that's literally what we read. Praise God. No, it's beautiful. And I will tell you this. If you take out figures of speech, the Bible becomes just pasty. It becomes lacking in depth and in spice. Actually, the Bible is beautiful in its language content. I think it's thrilling. Absolutely thrilling. This is normal ways of writing. Let's have a look at a picture, shall we? One that I will be dealing with later on. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation and chapter 12. Just one verse to demonstrate it. Sometimes there is a picture. When it's a picture, it's obviously a picture in the Bible. 
Take it all literally, except where obviously it's a picture. And what do you do then? I'll tell you what you do then. When there's a picture in the Bible, the Bible interprets it itself. You don't have to go to an outside interpreter. You go to somewhere else in the Bible and find what it means. Now here, you've got a picture, obviously a picture. Look what it says, verse 1. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. So what do we do? All lay in and give our different opinions. We open up, do we, and say, what do you think about this verse? Like we used to do at university. And none of us knew what it meant, so we'd all used to spend an hour talking about what we didn't know that it meant, and finally all go home totally confused. Is that it? No, 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 no. What do we do? Now you've got mention of the sun, you've got mention of the moon, you've got mention of twelve stars. Where else in Scripture do you get mention of a sun, a moon, and twelve stars? If you can find that, you've got the meaning of this picture. Well, where have you got it? Let's go back to Genesis. Right? Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Where we have the story of this precocious lad, Joseph. All right? And a very precocious lad. And look what it says. Uh, He says here, He's dreaming, and he says in the middle of verse 9 of Genesis 37, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me, who was the twelfth star. There you've got it. So what, do we, what is this woman? This woman is a picture of the Jewish nation. There, there she is, a woman, and she's clothed with these symbols. And the Bible says these symbols are Jacob and the mother and the twelve brothers. That's what it is. So, in Revelation 12, what's it talking about? It's talking of the literal Jewish nation. So the rule we are following is this. Take it in a straightforward manner, except where there's obvious picture language or idioms. Where there are idioms, understand what the idiom means. And where there's picture language, let the Bible be its own interpreter. Now there's the ground rule that we are going to follow. And we will find the Bible comes into logical order and into logical sense. Let's just have a look now at why I find the allegorical point of view totally unacceptable. I find it illogical in the extreme for a number of reasons. And if you know people who take the allegorical point of view, ask them the one of these four questions, or if preferably all of these four questions, and you must expect answers over these. The first problem with the allegorical point of view, A, and it's this, that all Bible believers, whether they are allegorical in viewpoint or literal, take most of the Bible literally. Right? Most of them do. So, for example, over the life of Jesus, they take it literally. When it says, after two days cometh the Passover, it means after two days cometh the Passover. That's what it means. And they take it absolutely literally. They believe in his literal death, in his literal resurrection. We're talking about Bible believers at this point. They believe in a literal ascension into heaven. They believe in literal church history. It's literal. They take it literally for all the tenets of their faith. But all of a sudden, just for unfulfilled prophecy, they suddenly swap over to a different way of looking at Scripture. Now, personally, I cannot see any justification for changing the rules. I take it all literally, and I take unfulfilled prophecy literally also. 
because it's a continuation. So I want to know from anyone of an allegorical point of view why, why do you suddenly change your rules of interpretation at the point of un unfulfilled prophecy? Where is your justification for it? That's the first difficulty. The second difficulty, B, is this. And it's one that I hope you all know, that you ought to know, certainly by, the, by this time. If you look at prophecy, it falls into two groups. You've got fulfilled prophecy, and you've got unfulfilled prophecy. Now, listen, if a fulfilled prophecy has been fulfilled allegorically, then you're quite right to say that unfulfilled prophecy will be fulfilled allegorically. But actually, when you look at it, what do you find? You find that fulfilled prophecy has been fulfilled totally literally. Totally literally. To the dot. Absolutely to the last letter, it's been fulfilled literally. You know the example. I don't have to turn to it at this point. But Micah 5, 2. Micah 5.2 tells us that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be born in a place called Bethlehem. Now, a person of an allegorical viewpoint might say, oh, well, Bethlehem's an insignificant village. So it means he's going to have a very humble birth. Does it mean that? Well, it does mean he's going to have a humble birth, yes. But he was born literally in Bethlehem. Absolutely literally. And at the time of Jesus' birth, when the wise men were asked, by the way, where is this king of the Jews going to be born? What did they say? Oh, in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And when they went there, he'd been born there. Praise God. It was literal. Let me show you another one. Turn to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. Zechariah and chapter 9 and verse 9. All right, Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Here you've got the king coming to Zion. Does it mean the king coming to the church? No, it doesn't. Where did he come? Guess. He came to Zion. Well, that's a surprise. And look what it says in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. There's the prophecy. If you are of the allegorical point of view at the time of Zechariah, you would have said, well, that simply means he'll come in a humble manner into the city. Riding on an ass is simply a picture. It doesn't mean he's going to be riding on an ass. It's simply a picture that he'll come in a lowly manner. He'll probably walk in, but he'll be very, very humble as he walks in. Does it mean that? Was it fulfilled like that? Well, how was it fulfilled? Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And let's have a look. Matthew 21, and right at the beginning. And here it is. Verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Beth Parge, or Beth uh, Page, as some call it, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Well, well. Surprise, surprise. Didn't Zechariah 9, 9 say an ass and a colt? Yes, and what did they take? An ass and a colt? Well, hold on. The allegorical view would say, Hold on, you've got it wrong, Jesus. Your interpretation is wrong. No, no, you won't find them there. Did they find them there? They did find them there. And what does it say? Uh, verse 4, 
all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And there it is. Now it's a literal fulfillment. And do you see in verse 4 the word fulfilled? It's been fulfilled. That's the point. Now, if Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled, literally... What about, don't turn to it, Zechariah 14.4? His feet will come and touch the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split in two. Why do they say that that should be interpreted differently? And by the way, if you want to, do come and see me sometime, and I will show you a commentary on Zechariah 14, written by a person, a lovely believer, who takes an allegorical point of view. Do you know what he says this means? He says that actually it's talking about the unity of the church in Zechariah 14, 4. That's what he says. It doesn't mean that the mountain's going to split in half and reach out to Azel. It doesn't mean that. No, no. It means we're all going to be one. North and south, we're all going to be gathered into one. And if that doesn't make sense to you, then please come and see me and you can read this commentary for yourself. I cannot see the justification. If we take Zechariah 9.9 literally, then why, oh why, do we have to take Zechariah 14.4 non-literally? It doesn't make sense. So the point B is... Old Testament fulfilled prophecy was fulfilled absolutely um, exactly. Why, therefore, and literally, why, therefore, do we think that unfulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament will not be fulfilled literally? There's no reason for it at all. Uh, one of the verses, by the way, that the allegorical view quotes sometimes is the verse found in Amos. If you can find Amos quickly, do turn with me to Amos. Amos 9... And verse 11, all right, turn with me to Amos, and chapter 9, verse 11, the whole book of Amos, by the way, is I'm going to judge this place, and I'm going to judge that place, and I'm going to judge this place, and you're going to be judged, and they're going to be judged, and someone else is going to be judged. And as I've explained in, in some talks a few weeks ago, the prophets never leave them down in the mud. They always try and then saying, but listen, in the end it's going to be all right. And you normally get a prophecy then about the kingdom that's coming. And so here you've got a prophecy, if you take it literally, about the kingdom that's coming. Look, in that day, i.e. in the kingdom that's coming, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, close up the breach thereof, I will build up its ruins and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden. And of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this thing. And it goes on about their prosperity. Now, do you see the mention of the heathen in verse 12? That even the heathen are going to be counted in God's purpose. Now, the allegorical point of view quote that verse more than any other to prove their point of view. Do you know why? Because James, in the book of Acts, quotes that verse. And they say, and listen, they would say, you literalists, he quotes it allegorically. Let's turn to it. Turn to Acts 15, and let's deal with it, because they're not reading it accurately. Acts chapter 15. In this part of Acts, they've got a big problem on their hands. These Jewish believers are trying to decide whether Gentiles ought to be in the church too. 
it's been nice and cosy just having Jews around. You know, it's nice, and Uncle Zebediah is in, and, and all that. It's nice and family. And suddenly they've heard that some Gentiles have actually believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they want to join the church. They've got to make a decision. And so they get people saying, well, look, God's done this. Peter says, well, he blessed me at Cornelius' house. And Paul and Barnabas recite how God has blessed them. And here's the judgment. Look at this. Acts 15 and verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In other words, that's Simon Peter. He's told us how the Gentiles came in. And to this agree the words of the prophet, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and will set it up. And he quotes. He quotes that. Now they say, but there we are, so it was fulfilled in the church. But does it say it was fulfilled in the church? It does not. The word used is, and to this in verse 15, agree the words of the prophet. In other words, what, what James is actually saying is, hey, listen folks, if you think of the future kingdom that's coming, even there the Gentiles are involved in the future kingdom. So is it so strange that they're going to be involved in the church? That's what he's saying. He's not saying it's been literally fulfilled and he doesn't use the word fulfilled at that point. So I would dismiss that scripture instantly. All right, C. There's number B. C. Do you remember that in uh, one of the early talks in the prophecy series, I actually quoted from Isaiah 41, and I said this, that prophecy was the way that God showed that he was God. And do you remember, he actually taunted all the idols, saying, ask them what's going to happen next. Ask them what's going to come hereafter. Go on, you ask them. And if they can tell you, then they're gods. If they can't, I can, he says, so I'm God. Now, if prophecy is going to prove that he's God, do you see something about prophecy? One, the prophecy's got to be clear. And two, the prophecy has got to be fulfilled clearly. Otherwise, how do you know it's been fulfilled? How do I know Zechariah 9.9's been fulfilled? Well, it's been fulfilled absolutely like it said. And I tell you this, if a prophecy says the Jews will come back into the land, and all you say is, well, people are coming back into the church, not many people are going to say that that is a fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, there is a passage, do you remember it, in Numbers 11, where all the people come to Moses and they start complaining about this manna. We hate this manna. It's all ghastly stuff. Oh, I wish we didn't have to eat it. We want meat. Where's the lovely meat we used to have in Egypt? And God's angry with them. So Moses stands up and says, right, I prophesy something, he says. By this time tomorrow, you'll be eating meat. It's a prophecy. Right? Do you know what happened the next day? They had quails to the depth of three feet. They were having to wade through the quails. Do you think they'd have thought that was a fulfilled prophecy? I think they would. But say the next day... Uh, nothing had happened and they started arguing. And they went back to Moses and said, listen, you said we'd be eating meat this time tomorrow. And Moses said, oh, well, that was picture language. I didn't, I didn't mean you'd be eating meat. Did I say that? No, no, no. I meant you'd be arguing. That was just picture language. Then I think, you see, they'd say, well, surely the prophecy isn't really fulfilled. Do you remember the call uh, in 1 Samuel 10? Do you remember the call of uh, Saul? 
Do you remember that? The signs that Samuel gave. Samuel prophesied to Saul. And look at the prophecy. Let me just read it. He says this. Then thou shalt go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet three men, look how accurate this is, this is a prophecy by Samuel, three men, one carrying three kids, baby goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. They will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that thou shalt, and he lists all these things. Now, was he to take it literally, or was it picture language? In other words, did he stroll down and say, well, Samuel said there are three men, but three, of course, means uh, divine perfection. <laughs> so it's going to be the right number. And suddenly he meets a crowd of 27 men, and he thinks, well, is this it? And one of them isn't carrying three kids, but, uh, say, is rather fat. And he says, oh, well, that's what three kids mean. He's going to be fat. You see, in other words, at the end, he wouldn't know whether the scripture had been fulfilled or not. Actually, what did happen? Every single sign was fulfilled, even when the Holy Spirit came upon him and he prophesied. Beloved, if it's so accurate in the Old Testament, do you honestly expect me to believe that prophecy is not going to be literal, so that I don't know whether it's been fulfilled? Is that what you're asking? No, I do not accept it. To me, it's a major stumbling block. The allegorical point of view does not make sense, biblically or logically. No, no. It came absolutely to pass, and so it will, as far as we're concerned. All right, so that's number C. Number four, and this is the last I will be mentioning, number four is the problem that the allegorical point of view has. And that is, if it's all picture language, who decides what the picture language means? And do you know that among the amillennialists, the greatest problem they have is deciding who's right in their interpretation? One amillennialist book says it's this. Another amillennialist book says it's that. Another one says it's this. Now, all over the shoot, at least with the literal point of view, there is a... 80% total agreement over the view taken of Scripture. They can't decide. And by the way, if the Jehovah's Witnesses says they're Israel, who's to say they're wrong? Who is the man to say they're wrong? The, in other words, you just don't know. You just do not know. There are no ground rules as far as, we are con- as far as they are concerned. With us, hard passages and all, we have to take them literally as they come. There it is. All right. The other reason, may I say, I mean, they're the problems that I see in the allegorical point of view. May I say, the strongest argument I can give for a literal point of view is this, that Jesus took the Bible literally. And the apostles took the Bible literally. Right? And all the early church took the Bible literally. That's the greatest proof as far as I'm concerned. And let me finish tonight just by quoting from the book of 2 Peter. All right, so would you turn with me to, to the passage we find in 2 Peter and chapter 1. Do you remember that day when three disciples, Peter included, were taken up the Mount of Transfiguration by Jesus? Do you remember that? And as they were looking, all of a sudden, he started gleaming a wonderful picture given by Ezekiel, by the way, of the, the resurrected, living, glorious Christ. And yet it was before his resurrection. All of a sudden, he's transformed. And there is Moses, literally, 
and Elijah literally by his side. And Peter knows it's the coming of the Lord. It's going to be like this. And look what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. This is the worst Greek in the Bible, either because he was an ignoramus or because he was near the time of his death, but it's very bad. And there are even grammatical errors in the Greek. Isn't that interesting? Peter wasn't terribly good at Greek. Verse 15, Moreover, he says, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming, literal, of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, Beloved, I'm not putting theories over to you. I have seen it, he says. I saw him as he's going to be when he comes back. I saw it. Don't think it's, it's allegorical. It's absolutely literal. And I have seen it. And I stand here and I testify to you. And look what he says. All right? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. I've seen it, but prophecy is even more certain than that. And verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, in other words, your own ideas. No, no. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man. Isaiah didn't just have a nice idea, and Ezekiel a nice idea, and Jeremiah and all the others a nice idea. No. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And I will tell you, on that basis, I see this, that prophecy is literal. It always has been literal, and I believe it always will be literal. And when you take it literally, there's no argument. It's, it means what it says. Therefore, to the question we ask, should we take the Bible and prophetic passages literally, the answer, as far as I know, and as far as I can see, is a resounding yes. Jesus did, they all did, and we do too. As we go on, taking a literal point of view, we are going to see the glories of past prophecies that have been fulfilled and the glories that yet await us. May God richly bless you. Amen.